Hello and welcome to the Plants and the Pipettes. The Plants and the Pipettes. This is only episode 119. Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast where we talk about all the things in the world of plants. My name is Tegan. That is Yoram. Hi. This is, how, this is how we do education for small kids. We're, to, we're sitting them down and we're having a chat about the plants and the pipettes. The plants and the pipettes. And the wonder of life. Let me tell Yeah. Um, beautiful. How are you going this week, Yoram? Uh, I'm 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 good. I I try to think back about the stuff that I've done and I realize my life is utterly boring. Um I did one thing. Like we wanted to do something last week and then we didn't. Anyway, I did one thing that I think might be interesting to <laughs> yeah. I, all of the show will be like this, um very mysterious. Um <laughs> I did one thing that could be interesting to some people listening to us. Um, if you want to do what we do, but better, there's a way to learn at least a part of it, the technical side. I made tutorials for the podcast software that I'm using, and it's not very well known in English-speaking world, and it's English tutorials, so that's why I'm mentioning it here. So maybe if some of you are interested in learning how to podcast in English with some very cool German software that has very little German documentation, um, follow the link they put. Also on TikTok. I'm also a TikTok star now for for doing microphone reviews. So maybe click cool. on that if you're very bored. How have you um, been, Tegan? <laughs> so I'm, I'm still processing the fact that you just gave poor or no information and you sold it as mysterious. I think that's very impressive <laughs> that you sort of spun that in such a way. Like... Yeah, enigmatic. That's that's what people want, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm good. I, I went on a couple well, yesterday, even maybe to a talk at the British Library, which was. Do you know the book Information is Beautiful? It's kind of a famous thing yeah. on the internet's. Um, it's a guy who does like all these, um, yeah, visualizations basically. So it's facts, but it's it's usually like positive facts. So things you know, education is improving, healthcare is improving. Um, you know, women's rights are improving, mm-hmm. these kind of things. So sort of showing like small gains in the world. I think he quite famously did um, a different fact or different news every day for a year. So that was sort of like a new thing. So he has um, information is beautiful, then something else, data is beautiful or something. And then beautiful news, I think is the newer one. Um, and the talk was around that. So he was kind of the, the key. It's David McCandless is the designer. And then there was um, some other also designers who were showing their stuff, which was really nice. Um, there was one guy called Eric Nyland. Um, he's Swedish and he has a sort of independent company called Visualize That. And it was just sort of looking at how you can show scientific information in ways that are really appealing. So it's a little bit far away from stuff that you would see in a paper itself. It's a little bit more artsy than that, but it's sort of about that link between the 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 fact information and sort of public perception so it's really engaging um mm-hmm. you know the the core the, the the aesthetically pleasing like like interesting in the brain and sort of getting people in and i think this is sort of something that we both care about quite a bit this kind of how science is communicated um and part of that discussion was also them talking about how maybe because like the newer generation is coming up with more sort of social media and things like Instagram where it is very visual and you're sort of developing those like very, you've got, you're spending a lot of time on it, but you're also developing skills in processing a lot of visual information. And that could be sort of potentially something that helps 
um, information be, be transmitted in a better way so that it sort of can we can get over that sort of fake information hump by having f- like better ways to process real information if these kind of things are going forward. So mm-hmm. that was kind of a positive. It was quite like a um, a positively spun, especially the beautiful news. I mean, as you can tell from the title, it's it's about only the positive things that are happening. So it's quite um, a positive spin, which I find a little bit tricky for some subjects, especially things like climate change and biodiversity loss. I'm always like, okay, there's there's a really fine line here. Like it's nice to be positive because <laughs> we don't want everybody just like rocking backwards and forwards in despair, but like some alarm is good anyway. Um, but it was really nice. And yeah. I, I want to link like there was one, this one guy, Eric, I just want to link that one um, in particular. Um, but I'll also put sort of the link to the British um library event if anybody wants to look at the other there was like a few different different infographicians is that how we call that as a <laughs> i would have said infographic designers but we can call them infograficians from now on and when, so one of them was talking very much about how infographics has sort of become a thing so this wasn't really you know the, you sort of had this older school style of having some spreads in newspapers um, back in the day when people had, you know, broadsheets, actual physical copies. But infographics has definitely grown. I mean, and also, you know, with the growth of having access to Mac computers and being able to do these things very rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've put a link to one of them. I think that was quite, quite nice. Yeah. And speaking of um, infographics, I have one that I want to show. And I think I will put this in the chapter art as well. Um this is one of the weirdest way to do a two-dimensional plot that I've seen in a while. Um, <laughs> it's the, the the plot is called which countries directly import the most Russian natural gas, and on the y-axis you have the amount of the imports of Russian natural gas on them, which is fairly intuitive. But on the mm-hmm. x-axis, the horizontal axis, you just have an alphabetical list of the countries. <laughs> And so you have a two-dimensional plot that's mostly dependent on the name, the it's first only, letter that the country starts with. <laughs> Instead well, it's of actually only one dimension of information, really. Yes. Like the the second information is irrelevant, yeah. basically. <laughs> yeah. But it it looks pretty. Uh, but it's it's an absolutely useless representation of of this piece of data. Yeah. I mean, maybe you could have put something else on the other axis, like you know you've access to other re- like you know coal or whatever other energy resource or something like this interesting yeah, yeah literally anything um could have been there but still no it's that there was a question there was a point so there's that the audience could ask questions and one of the people asked oh you know how do you sort of develop i think it was something about how do you develop the story so you know you have this information and then how do you choose the way to visualize that the best like what's you know how do you choose to put that information into like a, a pie chart or something and when she said pie chart the the person like basically <laughs> flinched like it was like a visible and then he sort of, i would have done that as well i yeah, like, had a twitch in my eye like pie chart it <laughs> and did, she's like it did how make big me do you make the circles and like circles <laughs> I mean, also in fairness, he's like quite famous now. He's, you know, one, like, you know, the king of, according to the, the British Library, who was advertising the event. Um, but he is quite big. I mean, it's, these are these are best-selling books. So it's also, I mean, if you sort of also betrays that you haven't had seen much of his work, but then, so he gave the answer. And then at the end, he couldn't help himself from di- giving this little, like, 
maybe not pie charts. <laughs> like maybe, <laughs> maybe let's maybe not do a pie chart. Um, which yeah, that definitely reminded me of you and any one of your rants. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pie charts are the worst. They really are. <laughs> it's a great troll. Like if I ever go to a talk of of them, I would also ask a question like this. <laughs> yeah. How like? How do you pick in PowerPoint which pie charts do you want to use for your data? <laughs> I think that's too clear. Just be like, get out. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. out. <laughs> Alrighty. Shall we talk about some plant science? Yeah, let's let's do some plant science. It's the paper of the week. And this week's paper is something that I picked. It's called The Expression of a CO2 Permeable Aquaporin Enhances Mesophyll Conductance in the C4 Species Cetaria Viridis by Maria Ermakova from the lab of Suzanne von Kemmerer. Uh, I think these are Australian researchers, if I remember right now. I didn't put this in my notes, but I think I made a comment about that to you. Um, and yeah yeah we know we know this name this is sort of an uh, Suzanne von, von Kammerer is sort of a name associated with you know crop improvement C3, mm-hmm. C4 you know making making plants do things better so we can get more out of them so yeah uh, why, why did you choose this was it because of the Cetaria viridis viridis I guess no was it I had, because I, I had to look up what that is um, no I thought I, I like the idea of the CO2 permeable aquaporin and we're going to talk about what that is in detail um but the idea that gas exchange moving gas from one body from the air into the into the plant leaves where it's then where the co2 is then fixed into uh, organic carbon i found that fascinating to look at the reactions there because in my in my head it's just there's a diagram with an arrow that says co2 goes in and then mm-hmm. all of the complicated photosynthesis, <laughs> photosynthesis stuff happens that I like, like know a lot of details about. And then yeah, oxygen goes away. Goodbye. It's like done. OG machine learning black box. Like something yeah. happens and then yeah, oxygen. Which, I think, I mean, by, by saying that you've basically done our introduction for us. I mean, we're going to explain <laughs> in, in very, you know, firm and scientifically accurate detail how photosynthesis works. Um, but Yoram's <laughs> basically done that now. So the next point is sort of, yeah, how how is the carbon dioxide getting in there? It's just it's kind of gently diffusing in there often. You know, it's like, I mean, very often it is the, um, you have the, the tissue in the leaves that's um, directly involved with the gas exchange is the spongy mesophyll tissue. And it's called spongy because it has a, it's like a sponge. You have the cells with lots of empty space in between them where there is gas, so air. And then from the air, uh, carbon dioxide can move into the the cells according to a um, concentration gradient. So you have lots of CO2 in the air and you have less CO2 in the cell. And so there's a movement from CO2 into the cell. Um, mm. Same with you have it's, lots of oxygen in the cell and less oxygen around it, so it d- diffuses out of the cell. This is sort of a passive transport and very common. Like wherever you just have two different concentrations, you will have to, you will see this movement. Mm. So passive, basically. I mean, when you're talking about diffusion, you kind of are using the word slow as well. That's yeah, exactly. You know, it doesn't doesn't cost you energy. That's a plus, but like yeah might take its darn time is is kind of a negative. Yeah, that's why they have the spongy structure. So they have an increased surface area and with an increased surface area, they have an increased 
and uh, diffusion flow. Um, if you imagine if you just had like a pinpoint that is the contact space between the air and the, the cell, it would take forever for the air to travel through that. But if you have a sponge that has lots and lots of surface area, then of course it works quick enough or qu um, to, to be effective. But there's other things there as well that can transport stuff. I mean, cells transport stuff all the time. They transport water from the roots up into the cell, into the leaves, and they transport sugars and from the leaves down into the roots. Um, and this does is not always only driven by diffusion. You have like active pores, active channels where these nutrients can pass through and that can be very tightly controlled. So you sort of have selective openings, doors that can open and close for certain nutrients or for certain compounds and the cells can control how open and close these pores are to direct the mm -hmm. flow of sugars or water or other nutrients. And apparently also gases. Um, which is what this paper is looking at. So we've got you. You sort of had a bit two different like levels of structure. So I mean, sort of the movement of things from the roots to the leaves, sugars and and water in in both directions. There we're talking more about these like bigger structures, like tubes and highways to move things. But then like when you're talking about getting like once you're even in the leaf, sort of in the leaf tissue, you do have to get into that cell again. So then you've got you've got the diffusion, but you've also got sort of mm -hmm. these pores that are doors that can let things in. And the pores we're talking about here, they're called aquaporins which in my mind would basically say they let in water mm -hmm. so what's happening here <laughs> why are we not only letting <laughs> tell I me mean, about aquaporins they're, they're mostly really involved in in the sort of permeability to water so how much water can flow from cell to cell i mean we know that plants like controlling water pressure in plants is incredibly important if you have any sort of movement in the plant that's driven by water pressure in most cases so um if the if the leaves like move upwards or downwards and all of this stuff is done by water pressure and so you have to have something that controls water pressure um and so part of that can uh, can be the aquaporins um that open and close and then sort of release the pressure or like um are working as a force against the pressure to control the flow of water. But this is a very large group of, of pore proteins and um, there are many of them in, the, in there that's, that are not only doing water channeling, they're doing specific nutrient channeling. And apparently there are also um, there's like several orders of magnitude. It's like a huge range of, um, of dynamic uh, like control so that you can have like very little um, uh, very small amounts of stuff that move through them or very large amounts of stuff that move through them within this family so that one pore can be like very tiny and very big but you have some of the pores that can channel lots of lots and lots of nutrients and some other pores that can very tightly control only small amounts of nutrients going through um, and these called uh, there's a subgroup of them that are called the plasma membrane intrinsic proteins or pips and these are the ones that are sitting on the outside of the cell in the plasma membrane um, and are controlling all kinds of flows there. Uh, and in in uh, many plants, in the C3 plants particularly, um, these pips are very well studied. So C3 plants, maybe you can make like remind us all what, what the, these plants do and what why are they C3 compared to C4, which you're also going to talk about. I mean, C3 is kind of like your your standard bog plant. It just sort of it fixes carbon dioxide into sort of a simple carbon st organic structure that has three carbons in it. That's the first step, um, and that's why it's called C3. So it first makes it this three-carbon thing. 
Um, and then there's this sort of alternative, which instead of making something with three carbons, make something with four carbons. Like imaginatively, that's being called C4 photosynthesis. And the main difference here is that this the C3, um, you it's. It's it's mostly fine. It mostly works pretty fine, um, but it's a little bit less good at dealing with some situations. So, um, the the enzyme that's responsible for this fixation it's called Rubisco, and Rubisco is you know can be a little bit slow and it can get a little bit lost and it can can fix oxygen sometimes instead of fixing carbon dioxide. Its role is to fix carbon dioxide. Um, and so to prevent it getting lost, the C4 plants have sort of found a workaround and that's why they do the C4 thing. So they, they make something, um, the C4 um, structures, and they use this as a method to sort of surround Rubisco, this this lost enzyme, with huge amounts of carbon. So they concentrate the carbons around the Rubisco Um and that sort of prevents it from getting lost. So it's a little bit of a, a sneaky way to to fix a kind of crappy enzyme. Um, mm-hmm. And this is kind of desirable to us as, as people. So like a lot of our crops, they are C3 and we think, well, maybe if we can help them be C4, this might help them be a little bit less lost. And, you know, every time they get lost, they they use energy up. They, they are not doing photosynthesis they're not making sugars um and they're in fact making mistakes which costs time and effort um (laughs) so we're like if we can make them do this a little bit better then maybe we'll have more food for us which is always what we're aiming for so yeah it's it's just not efficient when rubisco makes mistakes uh for our story here the important difference between these two um, ways of doing photosynthesis is that in c3 plants you move carbon dioxide across the plasma membrane into the cell and then across the chloroplast envelope into the chloroplast where rubisco is so you have to move two boundaries you have to get co2 across and there are in fact aquaporins that can move co2 that are found in the plasma membrane and then also in the outside of the chloroplast where photosynthesis happens Um, and this way they can channel uh, carbon dioxide all the way to the place where the action happens in c4 plants on the other hand uh, the carbon dioxide only has to go through the plasma membrane and then it's already fixed in a in a this c4 compound and then the c4 compound is channeled further so carbon mm-hmm. dioxide doesn't actually have to move physically into the chloroplast because it's sort of transformed in a different shape that can be more easily transported and then also it crosses into a different cell layer as well in c4 plants but if you just look at the carbon dioxide it only goes across one membrane in C4. And that is that will be important in the setup for this for this study later. This leads to there being a main bottleneck that defines how much CO2 is actually available, and that is the movement from the air into the cell across the first plasma membrane. And this is defining how much CO2 you can get, actually get then in the cell and then use in photosynthesis. And um, so wouldn't it be good to improve that? And... The researchers, like like other researchers before this paper, already looked at this and they say, un, under ideal conditions, there is no lack of CO two. Like all of the mechanisms, mm-hmm. like passive and active transport that we have, they they are effective enough. The there is a saturation of carbon dioxide. We don't have to worry about this. Um, there is enough around Rubisco. Um, however, CO two is not always is is not always in there in excess. Like there are conditions when there is less gas from full of carbon dioxide coming into the leaf from the outside. 
Do you have an idea when that is? When the, the immediate thing that came to my mind is like when you use the leaf is submerged in water, which is just not the right answer, but that's all I was like. I just imagined the foxtail sitting underwater. Um, <laughs> um, when I, I mean, I guess it's like when it's very hot and dry and the stomata are closed. So like yeah. the, the pores that let the gases into the leaf, they, they close them up to prevent water from being lost through these holes. Um, and because of that sort of, you know, everything's closed. The CO2 that's already in there sort of gets used and then you get like very low amounts and whatever's there, you want it to diffuse into the cells as much as possible to be able to be yeah, and this is exactly where the researcher's idea started. What, like, can they improve under these conditions when you have less carbon dioxide in the airspace? Can you improve the transport into the cells and then have more photosynthesis, more carbon capture, more biomass, whatever you want? Um, because you just, like, use every last bit of CO2 that you have in the cell and pull it into, uh, into photosynthesis. And this is what they tried to do. So they looked, you already said, like they looked at foxtail millet, um, which is Cetaria italica, and green foxtail, Cetaria viridis. And especially the Cetaria viridis is a very common model species for these type of plants, these C4 plants. Um, and as a grass, it's, it's related to other crops like maize and sorghum, which are commercially mm -hmm. very important. So um, we also have the genomes of these species um, and they can also be transformed so you can put foreign DNA into them. But I mean, even though we had the genomes, it doesn't mean we know what every gene does in those plants. This is, this is kind of the thing where you think, oh, we've sequenced the genome now, done. I mean, no, we even in Arabidopsis, the most commonly studied plants, we still have no idea what most of the genes are doing properly. Um, in this case, they use the standard thing they use is sort of they already know what genes do in certain plants. So plants, so for example, these pips might have been well defined in something like Arabidopsis, a model, um, and then they just like look at the genome and try to find something that basically looks similar. So something mm -hmm. that will make a protein that's similar to the proteins that have already been defined. And then this is this is really common. It's just like oh, it looks. Looks like it's probably, you know, looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, probably a duck like this looks mm -hmm. like it should do the same thing, um, which is, you know, quite often the case, honestly, like you can get you can get pretty close. I mean, often it's it's not always the same, but <laughs> we we do a lot of we get pretty close. I think a lot of the time with like these kind of gene guesstimation. Yeah. It's a good and starting on, point. Yeah, and on top of that, we have lots of other databases available now as well. So where people, they just look at pretty much everything they can measure where it ends up in the plant. And even without understanding what each of the little ones, the things that they're measuring are doing, they just have a big catalog. And so now when you're picking some of those out and want to look see where they are, you can look at expression data and see, for example, that some of them are expressed only in the roots or only in the leaves or all, mm. all over the plant, for example, which is something that they did here. So they identified a number of these PIP proteins, this type of aquaporin. And um, as you would guess, if you have a large number of them, you find some of them that you find sort of uh, that's sort of expressed everywhere. Some of them specifically in the leaves and specifically in the roots. And from the ones that they found most interesting, they then just put them in yeast systems. And we don't really have to go into the details why it's yeast, but it's sort of a simpler model system, easier to work with than, than full plants. And they did a number of tests there. So they looked like how much CO2 can they move around? Um, where do they actually end up? Do, they, do these proteins go in the membrane or not? 
I mean, yeah, basically anytime you want to play around with plants, you set yourself up for months and months of experiments. Whereas if you do something in like bacteria like E. coli or in yeast, you can get things. You can get some mm-hmm. results pretty fast in a couple of days. So it's a, it's a nice shortcut. But I like that one of the experiments they did here was this kind of freeze thawing experiments this is coming back to the the fact that these are aquaporins so like there's also water permeability that will change so if you Mm -hmm. if you make the yeast have more of these aquaporins it should be able to like move water in and out more rapidly so then you can see how the yeast survive when they're frozen and then thawed again because you know when something's frozen it has a lot of water in it it will expand and make these ice crystals which will like kill the organism but if it can get rid of the water quite quickly as it's freezing to benefit so i thought that was a really cool um mm-hmm. a test which i hadn't thought about it's like oh yeah that that's quite logical that's nice science yeah. and what they found in this experiment is something i found surprising is that they found one of these pip proteins that's mostly expressed in the roots um that was the best at channeling co2 through a membrane um and so they looked at this further and they wondered what can we do with this can we put this this thing that's mostly found in the roots uh and put that in the leaves and see if it improves co2 moving about so if it can channel more co2 then into the leaf cells and this is then an experiment they did in the actual plant they did that in the green foxtail plants and did all kinds of tests to make sure that that uh, the whole system worked. They didn't see a phenotype at first, or like a phenotype that was different from the control plants, um, which is like gr- good and like bad. Pub- yeah. So on one hand, it's not it's not hurting the plant to put things in it, which is often yeah. what can happen when we try to improve plants. We accidentally just hurt them instead. Um, but it also wasn't giving a benefit, which obviously is ultimately kind of the aim of this research. We want to be improving photosynthesis, which we should see as an output. We should see like, you know, faster mm-hmm. growth, bigger leaves, more seeds, whatever these kind of things that we ultimately are looking for in our crops. Yeah. So no, uh, no, no effect to start with, but then, <laughs> yeah, but then they 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 looked at um, things like CO two assimilation rates, so how quickly is the CO two actually put into sugars? How well are the photosystems working? Um, are there any changes to how much water is moving through the plants uh, in in the or specifically in the leaves? And they didn't see any effect there in uh, in the steady state. Uh, condition so when so everything is is done so you look at a longer time frame and you don't see really a big difference but then they did a more resolved um, look at the curves and there it gets a bit more complicated but they used some clever statistical analysis and they figured out that in the in the initial response where you have when you have very low amounts of carbon dioxide you see a slight increase of carbon dioxide uptake in these mutant plants that have this protein that was found in the roots suddenly put in the leaves and they can transport co2 a little bit better under these specific conditions so overall it seems promising but the the effects are quite small and they don't really have a full explanation yet for what what's actually going on um uh, so and there was no immediate growth benefit. So it 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 didn't mm. happen that immediately the the foxtail the green foxtail uh, grew bigger, grew larger with more biomass or anything. So it was pretty much indistinguishable in its growth behavior from a non-transformed plant. Which I have to say, I felt 
a tiny little bit let down when I came to this. I was expecting more of a boom when uh, when I read through the paper. I was like, yeah, this is so cool. They take this this thing that's channeling carbon dioxide and they're putting that in the leaves and then there will be more carbon dioxide in the leaves. And as it turns out, no, it's much more complicated. Um, it's not I there mean, yet. I think... The, the eLife has sort of an editor evaluation. These these journals have sort of a short blurb. And the, the blurb ends with the variations are robust, but there are still some intriguing open biological questions, which I think mm-hmm. set that up a little bit as well. Anyway, it's it's still like an interesting, it's an interesting concept and it's a, a very interesting paper. So very cool work. Yeah. So that was the expression of a CO2 permeable aquaporin Enhances mesophyll conductance in the C4 species Cetaris viridis, published in eLife in uh, last year in November by Maria Emakova. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. So I think um, a few months back now, I told the story about a group of scientists who took their vacuum cleaners to the zoo. Mm-hmm. Yoram, do you remember what they were doing with them? Uh, they they were taking air samples and then analyzing the DNA on the particles in the air and could then track some of the animals in the zoo. They like they mm-hmm. they would vacuum the air in the rhino um, cage and then they could find rhino DNA just from the air without taking any biological sample directly from the rhino. Yeah, so this is A-DNA, AirDNA, which is the sort of the upgrade from E-DNA or environmental DNA. Um, It's the newest, coolest thing. I think it's so awesome, mostly because I just always imagine people basically wearing Ghostbuster suits and like running around forests and like (laughs) sucking everything up. And it's it's so delightful in my head. (laughs) Yeah, um, and also like you to do it, it's it's not a normal vacuum. They they had these, I mean, they had like a a store-bought vacuum in that paper, but it's the ones which have the water chamber as well so this kind of cyclonic mm-hmm. water everything gets sucked into the water so it just it's it's so simple and it's so cool to me um i just wanted to mention i i don't think this is the first paper that has done this but airborne dna monitoring has come to the plant world so we've talked about it on the podcast just because it's cool um but now we're talking about it on the podcast because it's cool and it's happening in plants um (laughs) so there was a paper in bmc ecology and evolution that came out actually like at the end of last year about um airborne environmental dna metabarcoding and they used it to sort of show that you could get more plant samples and um, it was a little bit it was more but it was also different so they did um side by side environmental sort of traditional um sampling and then they did this kind of more air based approach and they got um a different types of plants using the two methods and they got like yeah quantitatively a little bit more with the airborne dna but they also got different ones so i think that's quite important in the story as well i think they got um some more grasses and things like that using the airborne dna which is yeah quite a lot more grasses um which is also sort of a little bit one of those underrepresented groups of like nobody's interested in grasses right all they do is make your eyes itch um (laughs) yeah but this is this is also why i'm less surprised that you can do that in plants because plants emit pollen constantly into the air especially grasses like anybody with a allergy can tell you yeah there's lots of plant matter in the air and it's it's making me sneeze and cough and make my eyes itch 
Um, so I'm so, actually <laughs> more surprised that you have like rhino samples in the air than than the plant samples, but still very cool that a tiny bit of pollen is enough to fingerprint it. Well, it's, it's, firstly, it's not just pollen. It's also sort of like small fragments, you know, bits mm-hmm. of bright, you know, flowers um, and just kind of free-floating DNA. It's terrifying, but that's the reality of life. There's DNA, you're breathing in it all every second of every day. Um, but there's also a blog post written about this article, which is actually how I found the article. And the the author of the, the blog post, who I think is the... The first author of the paper, yeah, um, also has a thing which is anyone who has suffered from allergies can attest to the fact that there is plant DNA in the air, which is exactly <laughs> yeah. what you're saying. Like, yeah, of course, of course, you can find plant DNA because it's constantly trying to get inside your eyes and nasal passages and like <laughs> get all up in there and rub itself around. So. Yeah. Um, so I guess I they sell this not only as you know a different method which can help get more and different kinds of of samples, but it also can be less invasive, right? So if you have um, sort of maybe ecosystems that you want to monitor without disturbing them, which is always one of the problems of science, especially conservation science, you're going to screw things up just by being there. This might be sort of a method that helps a little bit with that. So. Um, yeah, we'll put the link to the the article and also the blog post, but it's a nice story, I think. And maybe if we are already like using storeboard vacuums to sample the air, we can then also use DIY technology to then ex- extract the DNA and sequence it. Uh, I have found a preprint of a story that's not done on plant pollen, but instead on um, a fungus, the Pestalotiopsis uh, fungus, uh, with DIY-friendly methods. Um, so this was a group of DIY researchers that sequenced a whole fungal genome for just $300 and with improvised homemade um, instruments. And I want you to like check out the figures in, in the link that we're going to put in the show notes as well. Uh, they, they use some devices that I've used in the, in the, in the lab in the past, um, but in, in a very clever way. So what, for example, something that you do when you clean up your DNA is that you mix it with some magnetic beads and these magnetic beads, they attach to the DNA and your other gunk doesn't attach to the DNA so you can wash it a couple of times with water and as long as you hold on tight to the magnetic beads, your sample is not lost. Um, but for that, you can buy a very expensive magnetic bead holder. Uh, they're literally like hundreds of bucks when you buy them from a lab supplier or you can build it yourself. And they did that with uh, just a piece of cardboard and two magnets glued to the piece of cardboard and two holes on top where you can put your tubes in. And then you have a very efficient magnet for your magnetic bead cleanup. But this is not yet my favorite thing. Um, they also like melted down pipette tips to make little uh, pestles that you can use then to crush your your sample in the tube um, mm-hmm. before extracting DNA. And my favorite thing is... A tool that I really liked in the lab and I sometimes miss for kitchen when you have to mix stuff is a vortex mixer where you have a sort of rotating and vibrating bit where you like push down your tube and then it's sort of shaken very vigorously and all your sample is mixed very well together. And they built that as well from a personal massager, like a back massager um, that vibrates and they put a little cardboard contraption around it, put their sample in there, turned this thing on and it all bounced around and mixed the sample and it worked. They could then get with all of these like hacks of making their own weird instruments, 
they could isolate the DNA and then run it on this nanopore sequencer, which is a technology that's very cost-effective to get very long um, sequence stretches of the DNA, and they could analyze the entire genome. I mean, this is a preprint, so always take it with a grain of salt. It's it's uh, currently under peer review, or oh, it's awaiting peer review. Um, so uh, a grain of salt, as always, with preprints. But um, just for the for the fact that they invented or that they they hacked these these instruments together, um, that otherwise, if you order them from a catalog for lab equipment, are quite expensive. Um, this this made me like this or uh, a lot already. Yeah, that's fun. I mean, you still need access to the nanopore, right? <laughs> yeah. But you, you'd be surprised how many universities and other places are sort of throwing them out um, when, like, a project ends. Like, I've been part of the Science Hack Day Berlin, this, um, like, volunteer-run uh, hackathon weekend where people, they rocked up with a nanopore sequencer and some spent um, pores. So you have, like, sort of one consumable and... When they're spent, they still work, but they slowly degrade in efficiency and quality of the reads. But for some sort of DIY science approaches, this was still enough for them to analyze human samples. Within this weekend, they managed, and like I was there and I, I saw them, like they, they pulled the DNA from five people together for like privacy reasons and then extracted that and then analyzed, like could get the reads off of it, could align it with reference genomes and could look at the sequences without any like proper lab equipment because they as long as you have that little machine and very few simple consumables you can make that work and apparently it's not so hard to get access to to these nanopore sequences and, interesting and they're also like quite cheap as it's like, like in the in the paper they say in total they spent 300 bucks for this one sample which is yeah really cheap by for for uh, full sequencing um Yoram, do you know what the rule of trees is the rule of trees. Mm -hmm. If you would have said rule of threes, I would have understood. But the rule of trees, I don't know. Like, um, no, I, 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 I'm completely blank. So apparently, it's a thing that Leonardo da Vinci was into. So he was very pro drawing, but also very pro mathematics, and he came up with like sort of this idea of how trees work. And this is supposed to be one of the reasons why he could also draw very realistic landscapes. So he sort of had a mathematical understanding of how trees branched and that then allowed his drawings to be quite accurate. So also if you think of Leonardo, you sort of have this mm -hmm. image of him, you know, like the measurements, like the the human arms and the, I'm flapping my wings. None of you can <laughs> see this at home, but it's amazing. Um, <laughs> and so I think... Anyway, uh, his rule was basically that depending, so you have the thickness of the branch and then based on that, um, when it's a certain thickness, it's then branches and the, the two branches have to have less thickness than like the thickness of the two branches that come off should be equal to the original Ooh. branch, basically. So it's something like this. So it's... Uh, so anyway, back I found that like back in 2014, there was actually already a study on this that came out in PLOS One, and they were looking into this rule of trees. They sort of did some simulations, and they were trying to map um, field measurements of, I think, two species of trees to see if they sort of 
fit this rule. So it's looking at, yeah, the thickness. I think there's also something about the branching angle of the daughter branches as they come off as well. And basically what they found that was that it worked really well um, for sort of some situations, but at certain points it deviated. So it wasn't, it was sometimes right and sometimes not so right, which is, I mean, it's, he was painting mostly. As it turns out, there was a new study that came out a couple of weeks ago and it's called Experimental Evidence for Logarithmic Fractal Structure of Botanical Trees. And um, basically this shows that he didn't quite have the the factors right. So it's not related to the thickness of the trunk. So the thickness was like, you know, you cut it, you, the cross-sectional width. Um, it's actually more about the surface area. So they sort of used Leonardo da Vinci's ideas and developed a slightly new version of that. So they have um, it based on the surface area of the original branch and then what comes out of it. And they managed to sort of get a model that very accurately reproduces what you see in nature and across many different trees. So I guess thanks to this, we can now draw trees much more accurately. <laughs> you can officially draw better than Leonardo da Vinci now. Which yeah, is... all of us can. Um, using <laughs> science, we can. We were going to out-science you, Leo, and now... Um, <laughs> Good, Leo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, again, I, I, we always love the overlap between art and science, and I guess Leonardo is a pretty good example of that. But I also like this, you know, it is mathematics. Like, it's all maths. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can just see him, like, muttering there, like, me- like with a little ruler while he's drawing the trees and measuring the branches. He's like, it's all maths, it's all maths. And I was like, what is He's just been muttering about maths and <laughs> drawing trees for hours and hours and hours. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, cool, interesting. I have also a tree story um, that's another rule in trees, um, and that rule in trees is that they... Um, that there, there is a problem that trees have to solve. And the problem is that on one hand, they want to have gas exchange. We talked about this at length before. Um, so they want to have air getting into the leaves, but they also want to have water when it rains that gets into the leaves um, or that they can suck up, not necessarily only through the leaves, but that like in some, especially in dry areas, uh, they want to make the most out of the canopy when it comes to rain and, and suck up the water. However, if you have leaves that could suck up water, you can end up with a water film across your leaf and that blocks the stomata and then you don't have air exchange anymore. Then you have very poor photosynthesis. So this is a problem and how most like broadleaf trees solve this problem is simply by having the leaf having an upper side and a lower side and you have the stomata Mm -hmm. at the bottom where the rain usually doesn't hit it and you have a sort of um, waxy surface area where the water can run off or in some areas then the, the water can be absorbed on the top without actually clogging the stomata so that's that's all fine so trees have figured that out great um, but there are some other trees coniferous trees that have that don't have this advantage they have needle like tree mm-hmm. uh, leaves and these needles they don't really have this upper lower side discrepancy or discrimination um, okay, but it's it's quite round. Like surely the water is kind of like falling off. It's not I don't a know. Flat li- okay, maybe with like the the surface tension and whatever, uh, it can actually still coat these leaves, and it still can be a problem. And so they are not that usually the the needles they don't really take up that much water they are often also like quite waxy um and therefore they can't take up water but 
this then is a problem for trees in areas that are often very dry um, and so what can they actually do about this and this is what researchers looked at in redwood trees because redwood trees they grow often in areas that have both extremes they can have very wet seasons and very mm -hmm. dry areas as well so how do they deal with that um, how do they make the most of the, out of the water that they can get while still being effective photosynthesizers and they realize that these trees they actually have two types of leaves they have sort of the regular needle patterns that we that we think about when we imagine just like a coniferous tree. Um, and these are the needles that do photosynthesis. They have stomata and they are sort of water repellent. And on top of that, they also have other leaves that look like they're all folded up. It's sort of a green branching structure. And when the researchers looked at these type of leaves, they realized that they're very terrible at doing photosynthesis. They don't even, um, like the, the, the veins that transport sugars away from these leaves, they're all clogged. They can't, they can't physically um, make sugars and transport them away to the, okay. to the rest of the, tr the, uh, the tree. But they're really great at absorbing water. They can absorb huge amounts of water. And so the tree has um, sort of close to the stem, it has more of these water, um, uh, these, these water absorbing leaves and more outwards and also more, um, I think, on the top. It has these um, the photosynthetic uh, leaves that sort of are on the outside, obviously, where the sunlight is. And with this, these redwood trees can change the ratios between these two types of leaves. And That's adapt. what I wanted to ask. Can they change it? That's yeah. really cool. So they, they change it. I'm imagining like they've, they've changed both like depending on the environment that those individuals are living in. So there's sort of this um, plasticity. Um, but then I'm also imagining like seasonal changes. You know, you can shed some. I don't know. Although I think some of these trees keep their needles for a long time. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mm. think for for seasonal changes, it's it doesn't happen so much, but definitely for habitats. So within the same species, depending on where they grow, you find different ratios of these two types of of leaves on them, and this is really exciting if you think about conservation and the climate crisis, because this mm. means that they genetically have the preparation they are prepared for drier conditions or wetter conditions, depending on how the habitat changes they have the capacity to adapt to that. They already have ways to solve some of the problems that could come their ways, which could help with the conversation of these redwood trees um, because of yeah, a very clever way they set up the leaf structures. Super cool. It's plasticity. Very nice. Joram, have you ever heard of a sentinelian extinction? Do you know what that would sort of be hinting at? Senti... Say it again. Sentinelan. I might be saying that wrong. No, no. Sentinella. Sentinellan extinction. It's, Are you it's, just Googling it's not, now? It's, no, no. It's not linked to like sentinel. The no, it's with a C actually. No. Okay. Yeah. Then I have no idea what it means. Yeah, so it's actually this a sort of it's an area. So there was a Sentinelan ridge. It was just a particular ridge um, in Ecuador, in the Andes side, on the Pacific side of the the Andes Mountains. And I think in maybe the early nineties, no, in the in the seventies, in the late seventies, um, two botanists from the U.S. went there and 
came across upon this ridge and they just found so many plant species that they had not seen described before um some i've seen one article that says 90 others say like more than 100 different sort of new species which is just incredible on this like you know one ridge um and some of them were also really cool plants you know with black leaves so these really mm. just like different interesting and fascinating plants the problem was there was some development happening there. Um, there was a cocoa cacao plantation being built nearby and just like less than 10 years later by the mid 80s, there was construction of a new road which basically ripped through the ridge. It just got like completely raised to the ground. Um, so they're not there anymore. Um, this sort of happened very rapidly and to the point where one of the people who was writing about this I think it's a guy called Edward Wilson he wrote a book called The Diversity of Life and I think in this he sort of mentions this event and calls it the Sentinel and extinction which is then the sort of the name for something that's made extinct because it was in a very small area and that area got like basically destroyed um, so I haven't heard of this this term before. I think it's a little bit niche as a description. I don't think it's something that a lot of people know about. But ah, there phew. is this. <laughs> it's not just you, Yarm. It's okay. Um, <laughs> but there is a story that's been trending across um, the last couple of weeks about one of the plant species that was actually described from that ridge. So it was um, an orange wildflower. Um, and it was found sort of around this area and it was given the name Gastoranthus extincts, extinctus. <laughs> um, That's kind of harsh to, to name the species already as like, oh, are you extinct? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> this is kind of the problem. If you give a plant the scientific name that says already gone, people are go basically going to assume that it has accurately already gone. So people just uh, did that. They thought it wasn't there. They they didn't really go and look for it. Um, it was sort of in this, this area where there has been lots of development. Um, and... Yeah, they just didn't bother. And it's just been refound. So now, 40 years later, there's a new paper that came out in Phytokeys, and it's they've got confirmed sighting. As it turns out, Gastoranthus extinctus is not extinctus. I don't know if that means they have to, like, change the species name now, or just, like, you know, maybe it's, like, I mean, not extinctus. Just, like, <laughs> add a little prefix there, and everything is fine linguistically again. But... That's where we are. It's kind of a nice, good news, you know, beautiful news uh, story yeah. that we have there. I, should, I just, I just wonder how the researchers who named this came to the uh, to the conclusion that this is a good idea. Like, <laughs> I'm, it's sort of you immediately know when you when you have the setup of okay, we're calling this plant officially the extinct plant that it won't be extinct. Yeah, and it's also so there was kind of it came from this area which had the mythos of being the place of the sentinel and extinction so it was sort of around this area i'm not even sure it's exactly on that ridge but it was linked to that but even then in the article that we're going to link to already by the time it was properly described which was actually in 2000 so it was like after the events of the 80s there was already evidence that some of the the victim of the sentinel and extinction actually were not extinct. So I think we like there was already like forewarning that this was not a great naming choice, but people just forged ahead with it anyway. Um, but it is nice that we have managed to find it again, mm -hmm. and you know hopefully that is the case for other beautiful and rare plant species that they're sort of 
some of them are still out there. Maybe we can use air DNA to find out that they still <laughs> exist in the world. Just walk around the Ecuadorian forests with a vacuum cleaner. I can volunteer myself for that. <laughs> I have another plant that is has a weird name. It's the Jack in the Pulpit plant. Um, I tried to figure out if like if what group they belong to, but I just figured out that they're in a group of flowering plants, which is a large group. Um, I have it to seems, say, it seems kind of sexy. <laughs> yeah, it's um, I, I would call it a pitcher plant. It has this this pitcher like structure, like a cup with a little lid on top, um, and we see that often in some types of carnivorous plants, and. This plant has a very particular way it attracts its pollinators and and what it does to them. So plants, they attract pollinators all the time. I mean, this is pretty vital to their life. They, they often do that with visual cues and sometimes also like olfactory cues. Uh, but most of the time, these they don't really mimic other signals. They or they mimic signals of like of generally being a good habitat but they don't try to smell for example like the animal that's trying to pollinate them maybe it's smelling like a specific food that they like but according to this article it's very rare that they smell for example like a sexual partner of that animal or orchids maybe do some sort of pheromone yeah. stuff is that true but very few of them do um mm. but it, it exists in orchids definitely and also there's some plants that have a visual um mimicry of the sexual partner yeah, I mean, orchids are definitely like the sexual deviants of the plant world, I think. <laughs> yeah. I think we're all agreed on that, right? Yeah, apparently there's also like some small flowering plants that have specific dot patterns on them that make some, some beetles or some flies think this is a female partner and then spe specifically flying to that flower. But then even if they use these sexual signals, they usually just attract the pollinator. The pollinator takes on some pollen, is a little bit sad and disappointed that this was that a very terrible date for them and then they fly off and then fall for you, the next plant that pretends yeah, to be a mate. Yeah, you don't know. They might, it might be like mutual satisfaction. Like the the beetle might be fine with its life choices. I mean, it's, we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it says that like sometimes the, the insects then deposit their semen and on the flower, which doesn't really help the beetle or fly in its own um, procreation and then instead gets like a load of pollen and flies off. You know how there's this thing with like different forms of mimicry where if you're, you know, there's like these butterflies that mimic, they're, they're not poisonous, but they try to look like a poisonous butterfly. Mm -hmm. And that only works as long as the ratios between the the poisonous and the non-poisonous are okay. So if there's too many of the non-poisonous ones, then it stops being useful to mimic those ones because then any predator, like it's eating mostly non-poisonous ones. So it's just going to like keep eating those butterflies. It has to be like encountering enough of the poisonous ones. There's like kind of this like, end point game with these plants as well so if you're too sexy and yeah. you're so sexually attractive that all of the beetles want to ah! you um <laughs> then you're eventually going to run out of beetles because all of the beetles yeah. are just like losing their ah! on the plants um <laughs> yeah they have to sort of be a solid like five out of ten the plants yeah exactly it's like you know sometimes you want to go with a plant and sometimes you want to go with an actual beetle there's got to be yeah <laughs> Not too much satisfaction. That's wow. I feel like I've I've cracked something and I should write an essay. <laughs> I'm available for hire um if anybody wants an essay about the the complexities of plant love. Yeah, and the the, the jack in the pulpit flower, they they go even further. They um they attract pollinators 
and they have a very clever structure. So within this picture, you have the flowers of the plant, and they bloom at separate times, the male flowers and the female flowers. So first the male flowers bloom, which makes sense because they have the pollen that then later mm-hmm. has to be carried over to the ovule of the female flower. Um, so the male flowers, they attract the pollinators. The pollinators go in the picture. They can't go back up out again. Um, but there's a tiny little opening at the bottom. And so they go through the whole picture and they leave through the opening and they're full of pollen okay. and they fly off. But when the female flowers are blooming, that little hole there is closed. So they go oh. in the picture, deposit the pollen that they brought with them, and then they die and are digested. So they're eating their pollinators, which is rare. Most plants try not to be that mean to the pollinators because the pollinators... They're sending mixed messages, isn't it? Yeah. But the the insects don't know whether they're encountering the plants with the open hole or with the closed hole, so if they can escape or not. And also the researchers realized that they only find male pollinators. So this was a a fungus gnat, like a small little um, fly. And they only found male pollinators uh, individuals in the bottoms of these these pitches and it led them to analyze this further and realize that yeah it's actually emitting female fungus net pheromones to attract the men go in there um try to try their luck in the first run they go they get out of it and they're sort of like oh yeah this wasn't what i expected but anyway and then again they smell something that's very sexy to them they fly to the next one, and this is, has the female flowers. They deposit the pollen, and then they die in there. So, mm. for yeah, it's then again this gamble for the for the insects because like sometimes they get the reward, and like what with the male flowers, they get the reward of of getting some pollen and I guess also some nectar, and so that's why they didn't evolve away from this entire thing entirely. Um, but in the other half of the cases, they yeah, it it ends badly for them. I mean, I'm going to be honest, at the moment you said they use female pheromones to attract only male nuts, I swung firmly in favor of this being <laughs> like, well done, plants, congratulations, this is great. I mean, the closing and opening hole, like the weird glory hole situation going on as well, like, well played. Yeah, and this is one of the few plants that we know that is not only emitting pheromones to attract the pollinator, but also then digesting these pollinators, so it's really... A special little weirdo that's that's growing in a forest now. That's quite efficiency, Yarv. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wonder if there's like a um, there must be a a problem with. I mean, I guess anyway, males a male gnat like it can pot it can have sex with multiple females. Possibly, I'm not sure how it works with some species. They might die afterwards, but then you don't need to have as many males as females to keep the population completely fine anyway. So I mean, maybe it's fine everything's just fine yeah cat fact okay now i want you to play exactly the same jingle again and i'm gonna say cat gap on top of it no i would um so today i want to talk quickly about the cat gap which is the fact that there is a gap in cats um specifically in the fossil records of cats or cat-like things in North America. So basically, in the before times, this is um, before 25 million years ago, 
um, from what I can understand, just filled with cats. North America was basically just one giant <laughs> cat roaming um, area. <laughs> there were not just cats, but there were also like kind of these cat-like things, which were not technically cats, but like I think they like kind of looked cute enough to be. <laughs> you mean like cat-like things in our definition? So all other animals <laughs> or like really feline related <laughs> it's called a nimravid which is also kind of a cool name i don't know if i'm pronouncing that Nim- nimravid nimravid maybe nimravid sounds better um it's basically like a saber-toothed cat so it's kind of uh, closely related to cats but not quite it's kind of a saber-toothy thing um mm-hmm. i'm looking at images i would call as a cat-like thing yeah, that's exactly how it is scientifically defined in the Wikipedia article is a cat-like thing. Um, they use the word species, but they're just technical like that. Um, anyway, so before 25 million years ago, North America lousy with cats and cat-like things. And then after 18.5 million years ago, again, an abundance of cats. But there was this like really cat allergy friendly period from 25 to 18.5 million years ago where they're just, according to the fossil records a bit, there just doesn't seem to have been cats in North America. And like realistically, it's the fossil record. So like how much can we really trust it? It's always a little <laughs> bit dodgy. I mean maybe they just didn't fossilize well but there's also some arguments that this is a real cat gap um there just weren't cats hanging out in those times at which point people are wondering what the hell happened where did the cats go why did they go i mean it is nice because you know there's that thing about the cat came back but the cat came back the very next oh my goodness i shouldn't sing there's a song look it up it's called (laughs) the cat came back i think um they went and they came back. So there's there's some ideas that it's about their diets. They became like very like carnivorous. They were sort of eating huge amounts of, of meats, which can be problematic. There were some things about, you know, climate change or just general, um, yeah, like was global cooling was happening at that time. Um, habitat changes that are associated with that. So different environments. Also some things about volcanoes. I honestly think if extinctions happen, people just like to get in volcanoes involved. Um, obviously, I'm not a paleontologist, so whatever. But this is kind of one of the great mysteries of where the cats went and why there is a cat gap. Mm-hmm. And then the follow-up to this is that there is a new scientist story that came out at the start of this year, which maybe explains why they vanished, but it's behind a paywall, so that will be something that I try to steal from somebody or buy a subscription to in the next week, and that will be the follow-up story for next week's Cat Fact. Okay, that's it. That's us for that's us for today. Um, if you want to find out more, we have a website. It's www.plantsandpets.com, um, where you can find some old articles we wrote about various things um, related to plant science. You can also find us on sometimes Facebook and more often Instagram. It's at Plants and Pipettes. Or if you want to talk to Yoram, you can find it at Plants Pipettes. And as always, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Goodbye. Goodbye.